Well, every one of the hymns we just sang point to today's message. They're all focused on the work of Christ and what he did for us on the cross and what that means for God's plan of salvation. And you'll see that, I believe, today in our passage in Ephesians chapter 1. I ask you to turn to Ephesians 1. We're going to look specifically at verses 7 through 10. 7 through 10, the title, continuing with our expository series in Ephesians, and especially this long paragraph, the title of today's sermon, Spiritual Blessings in Christ, Part 3, Redeemed by Grace. Redeemed by Grace. That's the topic Paul now introduces. And so we're in Ephesians 1. Remember this, verses 3 through 14. Paul puts all these praises to God in one section right at the beginning of the letter. And he just moves from Father to Son to Holy Spirit. And what they have done, the Trinity, has done for us in salvation. And so as I read the passage, uh, consider how all of this connects together. How the Father's work connects, of course, to the Son's work, which connects to the Holy Spirit's work. And all three persons of the Trinity are at work in our salvation. We are certainly not working for our salvation. We can't. They are doing it. God is doing it all. So I want to read the whole passage always to put it in context for you. And then we'll zero in on verses 7 through 10. Ephesians starting in uh, 1-3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will. To the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. O Lord, we ask that you would bless our time in this passage this morning, that you would Make me say what your truth is and proclaim it loudly and use me as an instrument, Lord, to praise you. And we all might praise you through the word. Use me as an instrument to preach the gospel, to preach Christ. I pray this morning that we would see what Christ has done for us and that we would honor him, that we would respect him, and that we would love him all the more. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, as I said to you a few weeks ago, the purpose of this book, the purpose of the letter to the Ephesians, is so that believers would know who they are in Christ and live it out. It's very common today in Christianity to not connect those two. You either have people who focus just on doctrine, 
So much so that their life is a life full of sin, but they could tell you exactly where a verse might be, or maybe tell you all the doctrines of grace, and wax eloquently on different views and different interpretations and different commentaries. And then you have others who say, it's not about learning what's in the Bible, it's just about doing, doing, doing. It's always doing in the Christian life, they say. In fact, it's a common slogan in many secret churches, don't learn more, go do more, and various other ways that they try to say that. You know, don't, don't study the Bible more until you've gone out and done more for Christ. But both are connected. You have to know what it is God has taught us so that you can then do it. Both are connected in the Christian life. So Paul spends the first half of Ephesians telling us who we are in Christ. If you're a believer, he's saying this is who you are. This is what God has done for you. This is who you used to be in chapter 2. And remember, this is what Christ has done for you. And then in chapter 3, this is what the church is. Then in chapter 4, he changes gears. He goes now into, because you are this person in Christ, how should you live it out? And 4 deals with relations within the church family. 5 deals with relations in the family itself, at home, and in your workplace. Then he gets to chapter 6, talking about the armor of God and how to fight off the temptations that come into our life. So that's where we're going. That's the roadmap. That's the, the, the real theological view of Ephesians. But we need to understand in chapter 1 what God has done for us. What he's done for us in salvation. Everything in this book is really to combat wrong theology that had been spreading in that area. Of course, it, it edifies us. And that's how we combat bad theology. We don't go out and attack people. We don't go out and find people to argue with. We feed off the words of Christ, the Bible, and we grow in the faith with other believers so that when things come into our life that are not right, when people try to teach us false doctrine, when we're, we're tempted because of the trials and the suffering to, to go away from God's teaching or to forget who we are in Christ, Paul's reminding us, no, this is who you are. So live it out, he'll say later, live it out. Well, remember, we looked at verses 3 through 6 the last few weeks, and we, we saw that the Father has chosen a people. He's chosen a people, and he's, he's blessed them with every spiritual blessing. One of those is the choosing. He didn't look down the corridors of time, see who would believe, then work backwards to choose them. No, we're blessed with spiritual blessings if you're in Christ. We've got to thank God just for making that selection of his own free will, his free will. He chose way back in eternity past. And then in verse 4, it picks this up and 5 expands it. He predestined us. What's the purpose? What's the whole purpose of God choosing and predestining? That we would be adopted as sons through Christ Jesus to himself. And then he goes on in, in verse uh, 7 to say how that happened. And that's where we pick up today. How did that happen? How did we come to know God the way we do? Not only did he adopt us as sons, but it's all for the praise of of the glory of his grace. You see that three times mentioned in that paragraph, the one I read to you, 3 through 14? It's ultimately all for the praise of God's glory. We're all praising him for what he's done. We should be. That's what Paul's reminding us to do here. So what I want you to see today as we look at 7 through 10, is I want you to remember who we are in Christ. What does it mean to be redeemed by his grace? What does that actually give you? And then we can turn around and praise God for that. Because it's not all about us. I'm going to list things that, that God has given you. Because I think that's where Paul's trying to take our focus. But remember, it's God who's doing the work. It's Christ who's doing the work. 
It's the Holy Spirit who's doing the work. Every person of the Trinity. And we can take no credit for it. But what's God done for us? Who are we? Who are we in Christ? Are we just Christians because we're born into a family of Christians? Because we were raised in America? Are we Christians because of what God has done and what Christ has done? If we weren't converted by God's sovereign grace, where would we be? Where would we be? We would not have the things that I'm about to list to you. And even people who say they're Christians and aren't truly converted don't have these blessings. That's the topic of this whole paragraph. Spiritual blessings, namely God's election first and now our redemption. So the first reminder I want you to see is you have been bought with a price. That's verse 7. You've been bought with a price. When you go and buy something, you have to pay a price for it. You don't walk into H-E-B and expect to get everything for free. You don't go into a store and just grab what you want for free. You'll get arrested for that. That's against the law. And it's the same with our redemption. It wasn't free. It was not free. Someone had to pay the penalty so that we could be redeemed. Look at verse 7. In Him. In Him we have redemption through His blood. Now it's only in Him. In Christ is every domain of God's grace. Do you notice how many times that comes up in this whole paragraph? In Him, in Him, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Eleven times just here in this paragraph. Multiple times throughout the book of Ephesians. Everything is about Christ. He's already told us every spiritual blessing is in Christ. He chose us in Christ. He predestined us to adoptions as sons in Christ. God bestowed grace on us and His beloved. Now we have a new subject that He's opening up. Redemption which is only found in Christ. There's not another pathway to redemption, not another method to redemption. You have to be in Christ to even claim that you have been redeemed. That's the only place redemption can be found. What is redemption? What is it? We need to open this word up. We need to look at it in its historical context and its context in the Bible. It's a great truth. I, I love the truth of redemption. Without it, I wouldn't be here certainly preaching. I wouldn't even be here with you guys probably on a Sunday morning. None of us would be here. We'd be playing golf or something, enjoying the different things that people enjoy on a Sunday morning. But we're here this morning to worship God, to worship Christ because we've been redeemed. He redeemed us. The word redeem means release from a captive condition. That's what it meant in ancient times, the, the word here in Greek, and it means to set a slave free or to ransom someone who's been taken hostage. To the original readers, this would have been front and center in their life. Ephesus was a major slave market center for Asia, Asia Minor. They expect over 60 million slaves lived in the Roman Empire at this time. So all of these Ephesian believers knew what that looked like. And they would go down and a person would buy a slave. And they, and they would pay money for the slave to come do work for them. Or, and that's what this passage is getting at, or they would buy them to set them free. Or it's also possible to use this word whenever a family member or a king or an emperor would be taken hostage by an enemy and then ransomed back to his nation. And a huge price would have to be paid for the king to come back. Julius Caesar was captured, taken hostage. They had to pay a fee to ransom him, to set him free. But in both cases, either the slave market language or, or the hostage language, the assumption is the people who love you would pay the price to set you free. Many times, slavery in the ancient world, it wasn't based on culture. It wasn't based on skin color. It was based either on, we conquered your nation, now you're our slaves. Or, very common in the Greek world especially, people would sell themselves to pay off debts. Or they would sell their children to pay off debts. 
And if a man or a child was sold into slavery, the idea was that someday we're going to be able to redeem them. We're going to be able to pay the price for them so we can set them free. So anywhere that this word is used in ancient times, it was assumed that the people who love you, your family, your friends, would pay the ransom for your release. But it's much greater than that in Scripture. It's the idea that Christ, by, by God's plan, has set us free. And it's on the basis of the ransom that he paid. He paid a ransom. He paid a ransom to God so that believers would not have to suffer eternal wrath. Christ paid the price. He redeemed us. It's not just a term we can throw around and not understand. We need to know what it is. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver, like gold, from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers. So we've inherited a, a feudal way of life. Uh, whether you're pagans or whether you're an unconverted Jew, you inherit the work salvation from your forefathers, from your family line. And Peter's saying, you weren't redeemed that way. You can't buy your salvation. But with precious blood. How were we redeemed? With precious blood as a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He is the redemption. He, he paid the penalty. Jesus says it like this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom price. He gave his life as a ransom price for many. Mark 10, 45. The words of Christ there. He knew why he came. He knew what his mission was. It wasn't to make the world a perfect place the first time he came. It wasn't to get rid of all poverty, to make all the governments of the world perfect. He came to pay a ransom price. And he says, for many. 1 Corinthians 6.20 For you have been bought with a price. That's where I get the point title here. Bought with a price, what does that mean? Redeemed. A ransom was paid for you if you're in Christ. You've been bought with a price. And then he goes on in 1 Corinthians 6.20 Therefore glorify God in your body. He's paid for you, now you should live like that. That's the whole message of Ephesians. You're in Christ, so live like it. You're in Christ's church, so live like it. You've been bought with a price. He, he gave up his life. And it even goes on further to say through his blood. He's not just talking about the, the blood on the, the cross as it ran out of his body. He's not saying, you know, you need to get a little vial of his blood. I think they have these relics all around. You know, you can, in the Roman Catholic Church, and the Greek Orthodox, you can, you can get a true piece of the cross. And you can get a vial of Mary's milk. It's been around for 2,000 years. And there's, Martin Luther said there's enough pieces of the cross to make hundreds of crosses. Right? There's relics everywhere in Europe in his day and even today. No, it's not that his blood was magical. It was human blood. But he's talking about the death of Christ on the cross. The shedding of blood. And that, that triggers in your mind the Old Testament sacrifices. Through his blood. Through not just a gentle death of an old person as their body shuts down, but a bloody, violent death. A death that involved beatings, a death that involved a crown of thorns, a death that involved nails through the hands and through the ankles, a death that involved hanging on the cross for hours and hours and hours, a death that involved the wrath of God being poured out on Christ for our sins. That's what through his blood means. You see, every little phrase here, and Paul links a lot of them together. It, it gives me problems when I study these passages because there's all these little phrases and how they fit together and link up. But every little phrase is a whole theological topic. 
And if I was going to preach like Martin Lloyd-Jones did, he just takes a couple of words and he'll preach a sermon on it. And it took him years to go through Ephesians. You, you go on the Martin Lloyd-Jones website and he's just taking each of these phrases and opening them up because they are a theological topic in themselves. He redeemed us, though, through his blood. Through his blood. That's the ransom he paid. What, what ransom? Well, Hebrews 9.15 says that death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions. What had to take place? A death had to take place. And Christ is the only one who could, who could accomplish that. He's the only perfect person. He's the only one who obeyed the law of God. He's the only one who was completely innocent. And he could stand at his trial and know that he's innocent. And everybody else who was putting him on trial could say he was innocent. Even Pilate, a pagan, said, this man is innocent. But do we really need to be redeemed? Some people don't like the idea of blood, violent death. It's very frowned upon in, in liberal Christianity. But even Christians don't understand why we need to be redeemed. Does it really take his, his death? Could it have been done another way? Redemption has to do with buying you out of slavery. Were we really in slavery to begin with? I mean, weren't we kind of free? Free to make our own choices? Free to do what we wanted? And we just needed a little more enlightenment from God or just a little help? Were we really in slavery? Yes, the Bible says we were. We were in slavery to three areas. We were in slavery to sin. We need to be redeemed because we're in slavery to sin. Romans 6 Read the whole chapter. Unbelievers are in bondage to sin. It's, it calls us slaves to sin before we came to Christ. We were slaves to sin. He says in Romans 6, Present your members no longer as slaves to impurity and lawlessness. That's the old life. That's the unbelieving life. Unbelieving life is presenting yourself, the parts of your body, to impurity and to lawlessness. Because you're slaves to it. And Jesus says in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Do we need to be redeemed? Yeah, we're slave, slaves to sin. We're in bondage. We're in slavery. What about, the, what about the Jews before Christ? Well, they needed to be redeemed as well. And that's why God taught them the sacrifices to look forward to the one who would redeem them. And there were faithful people in the Old Testament. But they were still slaves to sin before God changed their heart. And many of them passed on. They died. They died in the desert, for example, in the wilderness. Why? Slaves to sin. Well, they had the law of God. They had the Bible. Yeah, but if you're, in, if you're a slave to sin, what does the Bible mean to you? If you're a slave to sin, do you really care about the things of God? The Bible only becomes a tool for your legalism. If I obey and obey and obey, maybe I'll get saved. You know, that's what our kids think. Because we punish them if they disobey. And they began to think, well, if I obey, that's good. If we don't correct them early and start teaching them as early as we can, they, they transition that into theology. They get it wrong. Why are we disciplining them? Because they're in our family in the first place. That's why we discipline them. They don't earn a right to be part of our family by their obedience. This is the same with God. God disciplines us, yes. God teaches us. We want to obey God, but only because we're already in Christ. Because he's redeemed us. He's, he's broken the chains that we were enslaved to sin with. We're also in slavery to death. Secondly, not only slavery to sin, but slavery to death. How do, you, how do we envision this? It's hard for us, but the wages of sin is death. Sin pays out wages. You get a payment for your work in sin. It's like a job where you spend your life sinning. And if you're not converted by Christ, if you don't come to Him out of faith and repentance from your sins, it has a wage. You're going to get paid for that. And what is it? Death. Eternal death. The wages of sin is eternal death. 
Hebrews 2.15. It said Christ came to free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The, the fear of death is so strong, it's like a slavery. They're scared. They're in slavery to it. Thirdly, we're slaves of the devil. You know you were a slave of the devil before God changed your heart? Before you were converted? Before God applied the work that Christ did on the cross to you in your lifespan? See, last week and the previous week, we looked at what God had done in eternity past. And this week, he starts off in verse 7 with what Christ did on the cross, but then applied to us in our lifetime. Christ accomplished it already, and it gets applied to us the moment we have faith. But at that, before that time, before God applies it to us, we're slaves of sin, death, and the devil. Paul tells Timothy, teach the Bible. Why? So that God may grant unbelievers repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. You have to understand, no matter if you worshipped Satan or you didn't, the Bible says people who aren't in Christ are enslaved by Satan. They're held captive by him. And that's part of his, a part of his trickery is not letting you know that sometimes as an unbeliever. And you think, no, I'm not serving anyone. I'm serving myself. No, he says you're serving the devil. Galatians 4.3 So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. What are these elemental things he's talking about in Galatians? Well, in verse 8, Galatians 4, 8, However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. What are the elemental things of the world? Spiritual realm, the demonic realm. They were enslaved. Those Galatians, before they came to God through Christ, they were enslaved to false gods, to pagan gods, which are organized run by Satan. So we're slaves to sin, we're slaves to death, we're slaves to Satan before, before we come to Christ. So he has to redeem us. He has to pay a penalty. But who's that payment to? Who does he give a ransom to? Some would say he gives a ransom to Satan because Satan is holding us in bondage. But it doesn't work like that. The Bible never says that. In fact, that would be on the line of, of heresy, I think, to say that Christ died to pay Satan? No, he died to pay the price to the Father. Well, who does he pay the ransom to? Well, he pays the ransom to God. Why? Not because God's keeping us in bondage to sin. No, that's Satan. That's ourselves. But because we owed God a price that we could not pay. There's going to be divine wrath unless the price is paid. Yeah, we're in bondage to Satan. But when we die... Now God will put us in eternal judgment if we're not in Christ. That's where people who don't believe go. They, they go to eternal judgment. And so a price has to be paid or you get eternal judgment. It's either Christ or judgment. There's one verse that really points us to this idea. Romans 3, Romans 3, 24 through 25. Who did Christ pay the price to? Well, Paul says in Romans 3, 24 that being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption... So there's the word there, redemption, being set free, being released. It's in Christ Jesus. So he's given us this gift of redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly. So God displayed his son, Jesus, publicly as a propitiation in his blood. So there it is, in his blood. 
as a propitiation. What's a propitiation? That's a satisfactory sacrifice on the mercy seat. Mercy seat was above the ark. And once a year, the high priest would go in and he would sprinkle that blood. And that was on the Day of Atonement. And that symbolized atonement, forgiveness that was coming in the Messiah. They were supposed to look for the Messiah through those sacrifices, of course. But there Paul says, the redemption through the blood happens how? Through the propitiatory sacrifice. What is propitiation? Satisfaction of God's wrath. It's similar to redemption. Redemption focuses on the price that Christ paid. Propitiation looks more at God's wrath that was satisfied by that price. So the price is paid to God through the sacrifice. Now this is a particular redemption that we see here in chapter 1 of Ephesians. It fits into the context of the whole paragraph. It is already described how God poured out the blessings of salvation upon us. If you're saved, if you're in Christ, you can look back and say, God has elected me. God has predestined me. And the Son now comes to redeem God's elect. And the Holy Spirit will seal God's elect by the end of this passage. God intended something by sending His Son. What did He intend? Did God choose a people and then just said, All right, Son, you go do what you want. You, you come up with your own plan. No, it's all part of God's plan. It's all part of God's will. And there's a logic that flows through this passage. So God has chosen a people. Now the Son, He comes to redeem that people. He came to purchase them. He came to pay the price for them. Christ's work of redemption, it's a work that a certain people in the view here of the passage is getting redemption. That's a blessing. We could be thankful for that. It's not left up to us. It's not left up to us to think we can add to it. Or that Jesus is just sitting there sort of waiting through eternity, wondering, will anyone come? Will anyone come and take up my sacrifice? That was already planned out by God, is what Paul is saying here. The Son came to do the Father's will, dying on the cross, dying on the cross for God's elect. Jesus says this, uh, this is the will of him who sent me, who, who sent him, the Father, that all he has given me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all in common unity with salvation. Mary, or really Joseph, is told by, Mary, Mary says it in her song, but Joseph's told by the angel Gabriel in Matthew one twenty one, she will bear a son. You should call his name Jesus. Why? He will save his people from their sins. We see this early on in the Gospel of Luke. Zacharias, John the Baptist's father. Zacharias doesn't really know that much yet because Jesus hasn't been born. But he knows one thing. If this is the forerunner, then the Messiah is coming soon after. So he sings this wonderful song. Remember when John the Baptist is born? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. It's fully accomplished. Jesus hasn't even come yet. He hasn't even died on the cross. But in the mind of God, it's already been accomplished. It will come to pass. It will happen for God's people. Husbands, love your wives. We're going to see this later in Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church. Well, how did he love the church? That's, his, that's our example. How did he do that? He gave himself up for her. He gave himself up. And the Last Supper, Jesus is talking to the disciples. And he says, in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten. And he said this, this is the cup which is poured out for you 
in the new covenant in my blood. He could look right at them and say, this is poured out for you. It hasn't even happened yet. But he knows the plan. The Father knows the plan. And he knows he's going to pay the penalty on the cross for sinners. Not to cancel out sin in the world. There's still sin in the world. There will be sin in the world until he comes back and deals with it through judgment. He did not die on the cross to cancel out sin in the world or to cancel out our inability to come to him. No, it says he died for sinners. And even when Paul says he died for the sins of the world, he's talking about he died for sinners in the world. Sinners that will be called out to God. You need to think of Christ as having your name and your face in mind when he died on the cross. He didn't just have this this amorphous group of people, but he had your name and your name and your name and your face and all the sins you would commit on that cross when he died. It was fully accomplished. He paid it all, not just part of it. We just sang he paid it all. We don't sing Jesus paid some of it. Jesus paid a price not knowing what he paid for. Jesus paid it all. What is this redemption in the language of Ephesians? It's setting free. Setting free from slavery. And then Paul tells us one of the subsets of it. What what do you get from it? What's another way we could say it? The forgiveness of our trespasses. You see it in verse 7. We've been bought with a price. He paid the ransom. And a major benefit of redemption. Sometimes it's even used as just another term for redemption. The forgiveness of our trespasses. There are other benefits and blessings of redemption, but here he's focusing on a major one that he has in mind, forgiveness of our trespasses. That means our sins have been completely forgiven. There's a remission of sins. There's a wiping away, a blotting out, the Bible says, a being done away with forever as far as the east is from the west. How far is the east from the west? Well, you can't ever get there. You just keep going around. So forever. He didn't say from the north to the south. If you keep going north, sooner or later you're going to turn and go south. The east from the west. That's how far our sins have been wiped away. What are trespasses? Well, they're sins. Different words are used in the Bible. Sometimes sin, sometimes trespasses, sometimes iniquity. Different shades of what's going on there. A trespass indicates stepping over the line. Trespass on somebody's property, you could be arrested. No trespassing signs everywhere. You're crossing the boundaries where you shouldn't go. Who sets the boundaries? God. God has set the boundaries. God has delineated what sin is. He set the boundaries in his word. We don't even have to guess what sin is. We know in our hearts when we sin, but God has also clearly put it in scripture. And so when we cross the line, consciously, willfully acting to cross God's laws, to go across the boundaries he's set, we're in, we're in sin, we're in trespass. We've sinned against the holy, eternal God. How do you pay for that? Sometimes I've been asked, why does that unbeliever have to go into eternal punishment? It was only just a few sins. But it's against an eternal God. If he's an eternal being who's always going to have offense at your sin, how do you pay for that? How do you pay for that? You need a perfect Savior. You need, you need God himself in the flesh. And that's what happened in redemption. We have forgiveness of our trespasses. When Christ paid the ransom, our debt that we owe to God is fully canceled. Now, every time you sin, there's a debt. And it just keeps adding up and adding up and adding up. There's guilt from that sin that's owed a price to God. 
to set us free. And here the judge, God, comes in himself, sets us free, cancels out all of our debts, and then brings us into his house to live forever. What a blessing. What a blessing. That's a major blessing being bought with a price. Number two. Number two verses, the end of verse seven through eight. You have an abundance of grace. You have an abundance of grace. We love God's grace. We named our church Grace Bible Church. We talk about God's grace a lot. We teach the doctrines of grace. God's grace is that unmerited favor that was given to us when we deserved eternal punishment, when we deserved wrath, when we deserved to be apart from Him forever. He gives us unmerited favor, grace. And and it's by His grace that we're saved. And so continuing in this idea of redemption, Paul says, according to the riches of His grace. See that in the last part of verse 7? According to the riches of His grace. That's the standard by which He redeemed us. Anytime you see according to, that's telling you something about God. It's telling you about God's standards. What are God's standards? Well, God's standard is when he redeems people, he does it according to the riches of his grace. God's standard, the the way he accomplished it was according to his gracious love, the riches of his grace. It's not just grace, but there's riches in his grace. How, How valuable is that redemption? How valuable is Christ's work on the cross that it could be called riches of grace? God gave out of his riches when he saved us. It wasn't some last thought that he threw in there. I got a little bit of grace left over here for those sinners. No, remember I told you he predestined in love? We also redeemed in love out of the riches of his grace. God gave out of all of his riches and grace as he sent his only son to die for sinners like you and I. Which means it's his grace. He gave it. He did it. What did we do? What do we do in that passage to redeem ourselves? I'm looking at the passage and I only see something we received. Verse 7, in Him, we have redemption. We do have it. How? Through His blood, in Him, according to the riches of His grace. That means we could do nothing to get His grace. We could do nothing to get redemption. We can't buy it. Not only can we not pay the redemption price, but you can't pay God to pay the redemption price either. Because it's, it's not by any actions that we do. It's not by other means, other methods. Not by the Pope. Not by lighting candles. Not by giving indulgences. Not by praying to the saints. Not by Mass. Not by attending church. Not by helping your neighbors. Not by reading your Bible thinking that you're earning something. Certainly reading your Bible can lead you to the gospel message. But sometimes people treat their Bible as a good luck charm. Keep a few around the house. You know, lay it out on the coffee table when people come over. Collect some dust. It's a good luck charm. Now you've got to get into it and hear the message. We cannot save ourselves by works. It's by God's grace. It's according to His grace. That's the standard. The standard's not works. We make no contribution. How many times is He going to tell us that in this paragraph? It's by God's grace. It's by God's grace. It's by God's grace. Sola gratia. That was one of the solas of the Reformation. By God's grace alone, we're saved. Yes, it's through faith. Yes, it's through the work of Christ. But it's through God's grace alone. Not anything we've done. And then he just takes off with this talk about grace. Verse 8, which he lavished on us. What about God's grace? He lavished it on us. 
That's how extensive it is. That's the extent of God's grace. He didn't give you a little piece of grace. He lavished it. He poured it out over abundance. That's what the word here means. Lavished, abound, super abound. To give an overflowing supply. It's to cause something to exist in abundance. He uses this in Romans 5.20 where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The more a person sins, the, the, the more they can be thankful for God's grace. The, the more sin that built up before Christ, the more God's grace abounded when Christ came. The grace that provides us for redemption, he's saying, through the cross was lavished on us. When God changed your heart and made you born again, he lavished his grace on you. you even if you didn't realize it, that's what he did. He, he lavished grace on us, he says. It's God's special saving grace, not common grace, that he, he gives rain to the just and the unjust. He provides crops and food. He, he, he provides marriage and children to the just and the unjust. That's God's common grace. This is special grace. It's only given to those in Christ. And it's poured out over abundantly, overflowing, given to those who God saves. There's an exclusivity here. It's on us. How many times is that phrase mentioned? In us, on us, to us. We're not doing the action, but we're receiving quite a bit here. He's lavishing His grace on us. What a wonderful passage to think of what God is doing when He saves somebody and continues to do in their life. How did He do it, though? How, how did He bring it about? Well, it says, in all wisdom and insight. That goes better with verse 8. I know the NASB goes ahead and puts that with the next passage. So you see at the end of verse 8, there's a period after us. And then it starts with a capital N, all wisdom and insight he made known to us. That's really the only translation that does it. The rest of the translations don't put a period there. And they take in all wisdom and insight with he lavished on us. That's the better way to take it. ESV, for example, would be a little bit better, smoother there. So how did he do it? In all wisdom and insight. That's how it came about. That, that's how it was brought to be. If you look over, he'll talk more about this in uh, verse 17. This is why another reason I think it, it should be as part of uh, a verse 8 there. Look at 117. He's, he's asking something here. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What is the surpassing greatness of his power? He's asking God to give believers wisdom and insight so they can understand more, so they can grow more. Well, here back in the earlier part of chapter one, he's saying that God lavished his grace on us in giving us understanding and giving us insight and giving us wisdom why did he do that well that's that's an example of his grace that's an example of his grace he gives it to us at the beginning when we're first saved and then paul's praying that it will continue to be given to us more and more insight more and more wisdom what do these words mean when he says he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight they're very closely related but there's a nuance wisdom is true understanding of known facts. An awareness 
and to the nature of things. So when God poured out his grace on us, one of the ways in which he did it is giving us a knowledge of the facts. You can't be saved without a knowledge of the facts. You've got to know who Christ is. You have to. I mean, that's part of the gospel. You've got to know about your own sin so you can turn from it. You don't have to be a theologian on all these matters, but you've got to have some basics down, basics of the gospel. You've got to know that Christ was truly human, truly God, that he came to die on the cross for sinners, that he was raised again on the third day. He gave us wisdom of those facts. And then he says insight. That's the more practical side of wisdom. It means discretion or carefulness to understanding God's revelation in the present time. So when he pours out his grace on somebody, when he saves them and pours out his grace that, that's a result of Christ's redemption, a result of Christ's work, when he does that, he's doing that through giving that person wisdom, which is a true understanding of the facts, giving them insight, which is how to put all those things together and realize that God is teaching us things and revealing things to me. When you get saved, it's looking back and realizing what God has done for you. That's part of his wisdom and insight. It's being able to read this and saying, I can get something out of that. Even though it's deep, even though it's theological, as a believer, you've been blessed with wisdom and understanding. You can look back and you can know. And he says, all wisdom and insight. Not that you know everything as a Christian when you're saved. Not that you have all insight like God does, but every kind. He didn't leave a few categories out, you know. I understand who Christ is, but I can never learn how to live as a Christian. No, all kinds of wisdom and insight he's given us. Not every single thing, but all the categories that we need in the Christian life. To understand Scripture, to follow Him, to worship Him, to obey Him. It's all been given to us when God poured out this grace. And even though we continue to study, even though we continue to learn, this verse is saying the moment of salvation, God has given an ability to understand who Christ is and what He's done for us. Not that you could stand up and preach a sermon on it, but he's given that new believer ability. Ability to understand. Ability to have wisdom and insight. Even a person who's just converted would have something of that. So God has blessed us so much. He's blessed us not only in choosing us and predestining us, but today we see he's blessed us by the fact that we've been bought with a price, that we have an abundance of grace. And then the last point, number three, You've been given revelation into God's plan. You've been given revelation. That's beyond belief, really, to think, yeah, he paid the price for us. That's unbelievable. And not only that, but he he gives us grace that we didn't deserve. And now he's going to tell us about his plans. He doesn't have to do that. He didn't have to save us to begin with. And even though he saved us, he doesn't have to tell us his ultimate plans, but he does. It helps us to worship him and praise him, Paul says. And so Paul's now revealing to us what God's plans are. Not everyone has known God's plans. Not everyone today understands God's plans. But believers do. Let's continue in the line of the argument here. God lavished his grace upon us in this way. How did he lavish his grace upon us? By revealing something to us. You've been given Revelation into God's plan, starting in verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of His will. The mystery of His will. When we see mystery, especially in Paul's writings, but anywhere in the Bible, New Testament, we shouldn't think that that's too mysterious for us. 
That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that it's still hidden from believers. That's not the way the Greek term mysterion should be dealt with. It's, it's not something that's still a secret today. It is not something that's too hard for us to understand. Notice that he said it's been revealed to us. He has made it known to you, to us as believers. So it's, it's no longer hidden. A mystery used 21 times by Paul is in the ancient Greek context. It's a truth that was once hidden, but has been brought out. It's the present that you didn't know what was inside until you opened it. And you say, that's a mystery if you're a Greek speaker. Now, if you're an American, it's, it's a mystery when it's in the box. And then when it comes out, it's no longer a mystery. But we shouldn't think like that here because it's been revealed to us. And he tells us in multiple places what these mysteries are. A mystery is something that was once hidden and has now been brought out. What is it here? Well, he's going to go on to indicate to us that it's God's specific plans for the restoration of all things, all of creation in Christ. Okay, we've been saved, but now what? How's God going to bring about his plans in the universe and on the earth? How's that all going to come to be? Do we just get saved and then not worry about anything else? Well, yeah, we're not supposed to worry about the daily troubles of life, but we are to think ahead as to what's coming that's so much better than today. What's God's mystery here? He's going to tell us more specifically, but it's just summarizing right now to tell you all things will be reconciled and restored in Christ. When he pours out his grace upon you as a believer, he does so in such a way that he tells you his secret plans. Not revealed to the rest of the world, not revealed before the New Testament. The people, even the godly people who were saved, who were regenerate in the Old Testament, did not know God's secret plans. Now, they did know some things. God gave them enough to be saved, of course. He told them many things through the prophets that pointed to Christ. But what happens when Jesus shows up? They've got the Bible. They study the Bible, and he says, you study the Bible, but what? You don't see who it's pointing to. You don't see me. So they had enough to be saved, but it wasn't as if everybody could read it and have that revealed to them. And even then, the secret things, the, the things that, that are going to tell us in the New Testament, how God brings Jew and Gentile together, how God brings all things under Christ, how God is dealing with the resurrection. Those were mysteries, Paul says. But now they've been revealed to believers. Colossians 1.26 speaks of a mystery. But Paul says, the mystery which was hidden before the past ages and the past generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. It's been revealed to us. How's God going to work this out? How's God going to restore all things like they were and even better than creation in the beginning? Colossians 2, very parallel to Ephesians, by the way, Colossians is. And Paul's saying that he desires the church to grow and their understanding so that it can result in, quote, a true knowledge of God's mystery. What is God's mystery? Well, in this case, he says it's Christ himself. Christ is the mystery. And in, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What's the mystery? Well, it's Christ. What else? It's what God is doing to put all things under Christ. He's going to tell us in verse 10. But before that, he again gives us an according to, a standard. A standard. He made something known to us. It's the mystery. 
It's the thing that's now revealed. It's God's will. And it's according to the kind intention that he purposed in him. According to that standard. What standard? The kind intention. The good pleasure. God didn't reveal his secret plan to believers begrudgingly. Well, if I have to, I'll do it. He did it because he loves to do it. He did it because he's pleased to do it. That's what we already saw with predestination. Look back in verse 5. He predestined us to the adoption of sons to Jesus Christ himself according to the kind intention of his will. It's his pleasure. He's not forced to do it. He's not begrudgingly doing it. He is pleased. He is satisfied to do these things. He's satisfied to lavish grace on us. He's satisfied to reveal his plans. It's all according to him. The Trinity is united here in the work of salvation. We cannot think that they're working separately. Christ does the will of his Father. The Spirit does the will of both the Son and the Father. They're all working together. Verse 10, here it is. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. What is the mystery? What is it in this case? Verse 10 tells us. Verse 10 tells us. What's God's secret plans that only believers really understand and know? Verse 10 tells us. There's a when and a what that it tells. We're going to go backwards to see the what first, and then when is it going to happen? So what is it? Summing up of all things in Christ. How is God going to take care of the evil world? How is God going to take care of sinners, evil rulers, Satan, the demonic realm, the damage that's been done to God's creation because of sin? Because of sin. Paul says the creation groans. Not, not because we're you know, throwing some trash on the road. Oh, you shouldn't do that. That's not what he's talking about. The creation groans because it's been upset due to sin. Ever since Adam and Eve fell, there's been sin. There's been disease. There's been natural disasters. Those things weren't there before the fall. Creation groans to be redeemed as well. Summing up in, of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens. That's the spiritual realm. That's the spiritual realm. All, all the angels, of course, the holy angels already submit to Christ, but they will serve him in our sight when Christ returns. But the unholy angels, the fallen angels, will have to submit to him. He will have authority over them as he judges them, as he punishes them. Things in the heavens and things upon the earth. All things upon the earth. Creation will be restored. Submission to Christ by all people. Every knee will bow. Yes, he will judge unbelievers. And he will be over all upon the earth. So that gets to the when. I think you know when that's going to happen. But the beginning of verse 10 tells us when. With a view. So he revealed his will through Christ with, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. It's a hard one to understand in English. It sounds almost like King James if we're reading this little phrase. But the idea is a purpose to God's plan. That there's a purpose. He's going to administrate that purpose through Christ. That's the administration. So this, all of this was done as a, as a forward-looking view to what Christ is doing when he returns. What's he doing when he returns? He, he's administrating this. He's carrying it out. God has a plan. He's arranged it carefully. He has decided when it will happen. He's decided what will happen. Nothing's going to be a surprise to him. 
It's already arranged, and Christ is going to administer that plan. He's going to carry it out. Now, this is not happening now. We don't see all things summed up in Christ. It can't be now. Satan is still at work. Evil. Christians are being persecuted and killed for the faith. Innocent people are being shot, being murdered, being put to death. Sin still exists. Even in believers, we still have sin. So we're not all summed up in Christ fully at this point. One more place the phrase is used, Galatians 4.4. When the fullness of time came, you see the same phrase? Fullness of time, fullness of time. When it came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So in God's mind, there are times, there are ages. And just at the right moment when God planned it, he sent his son, Paul says, in the fullness of time. But that's when Christ came the first time. This one's pointing to the future. In the fullness of time, this administration will take place and all things will be summed up in Christ. That has to be when Christ returns. When when this current age ends. Previous age did not have Christ, then he came. When this age ends, all things will be summed up in Christ. All people will submit. All of our sin gone. Our resurrected bodies will have it all. In Christ. Because everything will be summed up and submitting to Him. In conclusion, I'll just read to you a description of this summing up. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. What does it mean to sum up all things under Christ, things on the heavens, things on the earth? 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. There's one thing that it means, the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. Then he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. So there's there's nothing to oppose him. It's all going to be abolished. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Quoting from the Old Testament. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. And when all things are subjected to him, to God, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So once the whole creation is remade, the order will be God the Father and God the Son, and the God the Son will be upon the earth. When Christ returns, he'll be the one that we see. He'll be the one that we see upon the earth. He'll be the one that we spend time with in the kingdom, the one that we go up to worship every year in the great city, Jerusalem. And God is his Father, so we'll be worshiping Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when all things are summed up in Christ. I look forward to that day. I'm thankful that He redeemed me by His grace so that we can be there with Him. Otherwise, we're suffering eternal punishment. I love the fact that Paul teaches us what's going on and reveals those plans to us, that God inspired him to do that. I hope it works in your heart as well. Let's pray that God would do that. Lord, we are humbled. We are truly humbled by your grace. What could we do? We are unworthy. 
We are sinners. We are trespassers, transgressors. But you have sent Jesus Christ as our Redeemer. He paid the price for us. He took us out of that sinful world in a spiritual sense now and ultimately in a physical sense as well. He will come back and remake this whole world perfectly. We long for that day to see him face to face, to thank him face to face for what he has done. Help us to remember what Christ has done for us every day of our lives. We've been bought with a price. Let us glorify God with our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen.